Tommy, do you know when the first time I heard about Vertigo? When? When you two put the movie on my iPod without my consent. <laughs> That's how I got in. <laughs> That's how I got in there. Vertigo, coming up next. Haven't seen it with Tim Sestito and Tommy Tevenay. Hello, everybody. Welcome on in. Thank you all so much for listening today. This is a podcast where one of us is watching a movie for the very first time. And today that is both of us. Yeah, I guess we've never both seen uh, Vertigo. So we're diving deep into Hitchcock after we covered uh, The Birds uh, back in March. So, yeah. <laughs> well, if you haven't seen The Birds, it's on Netflix now. Um, two, I think we're just going to have to start covering a Hitchcock a month now. Because like, yeah. <laughs> I just feel me- like it's just a giant gap in my film knowledge. And every time I watch a Hitchcock movie, I'm like completely engrossed and sucked into the movie so i want to continue watching hitchcock movies yeah this is only the third hitchcock movie i've ever seen i mean prior of prior to us watching the birds i've only seen psycho and And i've only seen rear window actually that's not true i've seen the birds before when i was a little kid but that doesn't really count i mean Mm. i don't really remember it but um i mean like you know i I, every time i watch a hitchcock movie now i'm like engrossed and just like yeah this is great and i I love it and this is another one of them so we'll we'll get into it (laughs) yeah and it's like it's almost too early to say because uh, this movie was not well received upon release, but has gained an immense re- amount of respect since its release. It was one of the f- 25 initial films in the Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. It's like top five on most of like the prestige lists from like the AFI screen roll, like all these like you know, more lottie dotty like film rankings. Vertigo is mm-hmm. on that list of the greatest movies of all time. Yeah. It's shocking. It's shocking that like the critic response was kind of mixed at first because like like you said, like this is a movie that like I've heard for years and years and years. This is one of the best movies of all time. And you would have figured at the time it would have hit just as well back in the 50s. But apparently critic response is mixed. We'll dive deep in deeper into that in a little bit, but still it's a little shocking to me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think for for what, and we'll dive deeper, especially into one specific sequence. But there's one sequence that feels like it's about ten years too early, mm-hmm. where it gets pretty trippy. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if I was like, oh, this is prototypical '60s right here, like filmmaking, and that's probably my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> oh, it was crazy awesome. Um, yeah. And. I, you know, I'm like watching that. I'm like, oh, I'm starting to get why like that one scene probably threw a lot of audiences in 1958, like a jar. Yeah. Because they weren't on drugs yet. Yeah, they didn't have the LSD at the time. (laughs) No, they weren't on acid yet. But Tommy, before we dive deeper into Vertigo, what did you watch this past week? So uh, this weekend, over the weekend, I went to back to the Strand Theater where I saw RoboCop last year. And this time they did a double feature of John Carpenter movies. And it was In the Mouth of Madness um, and The Fog. Two lesser known Carpenter movies, I feel like lesser appreciated ones that I think still are pretty like great on the Carpenter tier of movies. Sam Neill's In the Mouth of Madness. And it's just a bonkers movie about like, you know, there's a Stephen King writer out there. If you read his book, you go insane. That's essentially the premise of the movie. And it's such a fun movie to watch with a big crowd. And um, me and our friend Will, friend of the pod, went to go see it. And it was just like such great, creepy energy. Carpenter is obviously the master of horror. So, I mean, it was great to see two of his classics up on the big screen. The Fog was also a classic, too. Unfortunately, by that point in the, uh, in the double screen, it was around 1030 at night. And I probably had a few too many drinks and kind of does in and out of that movie but it's still a classic i've seen it multiple times it's still good to see <laughs> i like that you sign up for double screenings all the time and <laughs> yeah. you just continually report well yeah by the time the second movie came around i fell asleep like what <laughs> well yeah yeah i i mean i i have uh high intentions for myself good intentions for myself right there but i mean like i i did realize going in or i was like fuck like i need a red bull <laughs> 
and Red Bull is not available to me. There's no fault to the movies, but it was still a fun screening. Uh, shout out to Connecticut Cold Classics. They always do these uh, screens at the Strand. It's always fun. And it's just great to have uh, a repertory screen out there for classic like, 80s, 90s movies that you don't really get seen in the like, Guillermo Draft House a lot. <laughs> so I watched a couple movies, and I'm thinking I'm going to have to just go with the big guns right off the bat. Uh, for anyone that wasn't aware, there was a re-release of a movie celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Um, it's like a small little movie that it only grossed like five million at the box office this weekend. Um, and that is, of course, Star Wars: Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Um, real indie, real, real indie stuff. Uh, so for me, it was like, I, you know, I love the explain my relationship with star wars i love the original trilogy i kind of think most of the other stuff that's come out since has been kind of crap um and return of the jedi is like the ugliest there's like the the red-headed cousin of the original trilogy um going to see it in theaters um it's such a goofy movie like it's yeah, it's, it's extremely goofy and complete like tonal departure from the original, the first two, which are, I would consider easily the top tier of of Star Wars movies. But it's so much fun and it's like very memorable, even though like the second act is a total slog to get through. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen it. I almost went to go see a screening of this too myself this weekend, but I was just dead tired from the Carpenter double feature. So I was like, Return of the Jedi, I'm not crazy about that movie. I never have been. So I was like, ah, I'd rather just fucking chill at my apartment. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, they, it was this, they released the most recent Blu-ray Disney cut of it. So it wasn't even the original theatrical cut, which... I mean, they were never going to release that, but yeah, it's never going to come out. <laughs> well, no, it'll come out once Lucas is dead. That's my that's my theory is that like Disney knows that they're sitting on like millions and millions of dollars for an, or an official high def re-release of these movies in their original cuts, and Lucas just needs to be dead before that will happen. It was cool seeing like an ori- the original Star Wars in theaters because like I've never seen the orig- any of the original trilogy in theaters. I've probably seen all of the other movies in mm. theaters. Um, and like Return of the Jedi, like this re-release is like the first time I can remember a an original Star Wars movie going back into the theater. Uh, I mean, like when we were like little kids, or it was a, yeah, when we were like, like three. That was the special edition. Like the that's yeah. when Lucas like made all the the edits to to the original star wars and pissed off a bunch of nerds and then he made the phantom menace which they all loved they all really loved it so much i feel like part of star wars fandom is hating most of star wars yeah it's i mean i i i don't really call myself a star wars fan i'm just a fan of two movies like i'm i'm a fan of the mets and the giants that's those are the two things I have left that I'm like a fan of, you know, where I'm yeah. like, I'll root for the Jersey. Like I always say there's a lot, there's a lot of people that root for the Jersey of the intellectual property that they like. And if that's what they enjoy, that's good for them. I'm a little more critical of that and not just watching, like watching it and being like, it's good. Cause it's star Wars. Like that's pretty uh, lackadaisical. If you ask me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I've gotten to a point of Star Wars where, like, like I said, I only, like you said, I only like two of the movies and the rest of them. I'm like, yeah, I don't give a shit. <laughs> Return of the Jedi is like, it's the first and third acts are, are great, but the bulk of the movie, which is the second act, like an hour of it is like not great to go through, but it's like, it's one of those movies that you saw it when you were four, five, six, like you have a memory of your dad, your brother, your uncles somebody showing you those movies so it's still like a lot of fun to to watch like it's a fun movie but it's like it's utterly ridiculous like the with the ewoks and they had nothing for han and leia to do in that movie so they just stood in front of a door for 45 minutes yeah (laughs) so that was that movie but let's talk about a movie that's a little better than return of the jedi we're talking about Vertigo. 
Fathom Events, TCM Big Screen Classics, and Universal Pictures present James Stewart and Kim Novak in a tale of obsession. Does that remind you of her? Fear and betrayal from the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. Vertigo, with exclusive insights from TCM host Eddie Muller in select cinemas March 18th and 21st only. Tickets on sale now at fathomevents.com. Available on Blu-ray and DVD. I will say this. If I ever do get the opportunity to see Vertigo in theaters, I absolutely will take full advantage of that chance because this is a movie where, like, you know, I have a 65-inch TV. It's nothing to scoff at. It's nice mm. to watch movies on. But there's something about seeing it on that big screen, on that projector, that uh, makes it hit differently. And something about just the production, the colors, the, mm. the cinematography like just popped off my television and i was like craving yeah. to have this experience in a theater it's it's kind of, it's kind of funny that you brought up uh star wars because this movie also had like a little bit of a weird uh like re-release in terms of theaters uh apparently hitchcock uh kept this out of uh theatrical distribution since 1968 so for like fucking years and years and years until the 80s uh, the people weren't able to fucking discover this movie. This is considered a lost Hitchcock movie, along with The Man Who Knew Too Much and Rear Window. And I think Rope was another one, too. And um, pretty much in the 90s, this guy, uh, these two guys, Harris and Katz, uh, they decided to like re-release it with Jim Stewart and like, you know, change the color a little bit right here and there. And people were, Phil Bucks were so angry and pissed off about it. Kind of like Star Wars fans were just like, oh, well, the color in this scene isn't like what Hitchcock intended. Like it should be in the 50s. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and the weird thing is, last Star Wars point, there are people that do get very angry about the color palette changes in the original, like, in the, like, and that's not what I get, I, like, it happens, whatever. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know enough about the different color palettes in Vertigo, the 1958 release, because it was never seen outside of that limited window. Yeah. And versus this one, so how can I know, like, what what is what what's better than what? But I thought that yeah. this movie was drop dead gorgeous, like from beginning to mm -hmm. end. The restoration is great. I mean, when we watched the bird, um, I don't know, we didn't touch upon this when we uh, covered it, but the restoration or the copy I saw on Amazon Video on of the birds, for example, was just like colorless. It was almost like, yeah, kind of like it was, drab. It was flat. It was flat. I mean, it looked yeah. good. Mm -hmm. you know hitchcock is masterful at his camera movements with the mm -hmm. way that the with his different shots i love the way that that he did that zoom warp when he was showing james stewart up at heights and experiencing vertigo like i yeah. love that shot it was really like the 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 originator of like the jaw shot you know the classic dolly shot of robert uh shaw yeah or, or not a rubber shot, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, mm -hmm. Forgetting his name off the top of my head. <laughs> but like that's famous scene with Jaws where he just zooms in right there. It's like pretty much you could see the origins of that right there in Vertigo. And that's how they did it. And, you know, this apparently had like the first like computer graphic image with Saul Boss in the beginning with like that huge, crazy title card, which was amazing in this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And ultimately that logo, it, it lends itself to the theme of the movie, which is about obsession and obsessive mm. relationships. Yeah. And the the nature of them and how toxic they can be and how crazy somebody can become over another. And it's... Mm. I felt like this was really masterfully scripted. Like, mm. I did not see where this movie was going, but I was enthralled yeah. the entire time. Like, I yeah. thought that might be that Kim Novak, who plays Madeline and Judy, I thought that might have been Elster's actual wife. And I thought that she actually died, and it was going to be about the fallout of the trauma of it and him just seeing her everywhere. Um, I didn't expect the twist, which... Judy, who played Madeline, so kindly wrote a letter and never gave it to Scotty. Dearest Scotty, and so you found me. This is the moment that I dreaded and hoped for. 
wondering what I would say and do if I ever saw you again. I wanted so to see you again just once. Now I'll go and you can give up your search. I want you to have peace of mind. You've nothing to blame yourself for. You were the victim. I was the tool and you were the victim of Gavin Elster's plan to murder his wife. He chose me to play the part because I looked like her, dressed me up like her. He was quite safe because she lived in the country and rarely came to town. He chose you to be the witness to a suicide. The Carlotta story was part real, part invented to make you testify that Madeline wanted to kill herself. He knew of your illness. He knew you'd never get up the stairs of the tower. He planned it so well. He made no mistakes. I made the mistake. I fell in love. That wasn't part of the plan. I'm still in love with you, and I want you so to love me. If I had the nerve, I'd stay and lie, hoping that I could make you love me again, as I am for myself. And so forget the other and forget the past. But I don't know whether I have the nerve to try. What's really crazy about this is how, um, you know, typically in like your film noirs or whatever, you know, you'd see this scene at the end of the movie where it's like, this is the coda. I've been like, here's my reveal. Here's what I did. But it's kind of brilliant in this aspect that this movie, the, the twist right there comes like two thirds through the movie where we still have the last third to like, see how it wraps up and everything like that. And it's something that Hitchcock was worried about it. He was worried that like audiences would lose interest in this movie if audiences knew too early what was going on. And so he did two screens for critics, apparently, and uh, in New York City, one with the flashback and one without. With the flashback, critics called it Hitchcock's best movie ever. And without it, critics called it one of his worst movies ever. With that in mind, he's like, OK, I got to have this flashback in. And I think this really makes the movie really interesting in a narrative aspect. Yeah, because it it allows the audience to get a sense because you're look because we're looking at the actress, Kim Novak, who gave a terrific performance. Um mm-hmm in this movie and we're we're watching her release uh like you were you know her reveal and when we're introduced to her kind of like wow that they found like a double that looks just like her but they had dyed her hair brown different hair mm. color like different you know different makeup made her tanner than she was as madeline so we're kind of like huh like okay like this looks really familiar and james stewart scotty finds her and like tracks her down and basically like forces this conversation onto her and mm-hmm. asks her to take her to dinner and the funny thing about it is that it's i'm not funny the like i think the brilliant thing about it is that you you're waiting for that reveal moment at the end of the movie mm-hmm. And then you just sit there and you go, okay, well, now I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. What is the rest of this movie going to be about? And it just, Hitchcock is known as a master of suspense, as said in the Fathom Films uh, trailer, because they did not have TV spots for movies back in 1958, believe it or not. Not not for the most part. Um, Well, it's like Hitchcock, there's some famous quote he always does. I'm probably going to butcher this where he says, that suspense is when the audience knows that there's a bomb underneath the table and the characters don't know that there's a bomb underneath that table. And horror is more when the bomb or just goes off immediately or something like that. And, you know, this is one of those things where like, you know, the second we find out that that aspect of Kim Novak's character, it's just like, Oh fuck. Like what's going to happen to Jim Stewart now. And I think that just makes it more tense, more uh, suspenseful. Cause you just like know the whole entire time that this guy's being um, just essentially like, pulled one over and you know i think it, if this was at the end of the movie it probably would have been like kind of hokey or like one of those things where it's like a m night shaman type twist where it's like what is this mm-hmm. bullshit <laughs> they would have the critics would have panned and been like he's ripping off m night Shyamalan." yeah 50 years earlier <laughs> 50 years earlier no and i think part of it is that um you know this movie is really about manipulative relationships and it starts mm-hmm. with Gavin Elster, uh, Scotty's old college roommate friend, reaching out to him, saying that his wife's been acting strangely. 
And the audience does not know that he planted Judy to be his wife, Madeline, because they looked alike. And he then follows her. And like, for me, I was like, wow, he is the worst detective I've ever seen in my life because he's like trailing her and stuff. And he is, you know, typically you want to be three, four cars behind, like observe, like you don't want to be directly behind them and then park directly behind them and then leave the second they leave because you know usually that leaves a trail but it's it was intentional because judy playing madeline wanted him to follow her because gavin was setting this up to kill his actual wife and take her inheritance and leave the country Mm. and wanted to set up an elaborate scheme knowing that scotty had a, a case of vertigo uh, arachnophobia right was that what they called it in the movie? uh well arachnophobia is the fear of spiders I that's mean, what it, i thought that's what i thought when it came out it, it felt wrong when it when it came out yeah um so apparently this movie is blamed uh accredited or blamed for having uh vertigo being the fear of heights and the proper name is arachophobia uh, uh, so it, it's very sim- it's very similar to arachophobia so uh vertigo is apparently the sensation of whirling and loss of balance associated a particular looking down from a great height so i mean whatever fuck it but you know yeah i mean apples uh, aren't just yeah <laughs> rachnophobia does not hit as hard as the title vertigo does um and it just yeah. fits this like split because you know early on in the movie we get the sense that like john scotty ferguson right that's his full mm-hmm. name mm-hmm. not entirely sure where the scotty came from but i like it i like it and we get the sense that he's a good guy. You know, he's still with his ex-fiance uh, Midge, but, you know, it's it seems like a weird relationship. It's like they don't know how to not be with each other, but they, they're not together. They don't really yeah. dive too much into why she ended up leaving him. And watching him descend into madness and become this, like, overly obsessive, controlling freak, and it feels almost unnatural to his um to who we were introduced to because there's that great yeah. scene in the beginning it's like the first you know the first opening scene is scotty hanging on the rooftop and watching the cop fall to the death to introduce the fear and mm-hmm. then the second part is just a real dive into his character and into that experience and him going back and forth with mitch who we learn truly does end up caring about scotty a lot yeah, I think that this movie and Hitchcock in general just weaponizes uh, James Stewart's um, like movie star, uh, movie star persona to a great degree. I mean, like you know, we covered uh, "It's a Wonderful Life" back in December, and that's a movie that, like, you know, he's obviously the oh shucks, oh geez, oh Mary, oh you're great, oh, and you know, like you expect him when you see this movie. I didn't realize he was in this movie uh, to start, and I was like, oh shit, it's James Stewart, what the fuck? And then like he's like the wholesome, like little hokey old like. Uh, American Pie type guy, and then like this fact that this movie gets to see him be more and more sinister and more and more controlled in a way, just kind of weaponizes him to an extent that you wouldn't expect that whatsoever. Um, and I think that he just uses it in a great way, and just a great like subversion of what we expect out of James Stewart, the, the typical "It's a Wonderful Life" wholesome uh, guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it you know it just shows like the range and diversity that James Stewart has. I mean. Probably mm-hmm. comes from just seeing, having seen probably the most of any of the classic Hollywood stars. I've probably seen the most of James Stewart, but he's mm-hmm. easily like my favorite from that era. And there's just, you're able to connect with him uh, through his facial expressions, through his tone of voice. Mm-hmm. And it's a way the audience is able to connect um, with him as uh, as a as a performer. So for you, Carlotta Valdez. And obviously you and I both went in not knowing pretty much anything about this movie other than mm. it was like, oh, it's Hitch- it's considered Hitchcock's best movie, which is quite a statement. Mm. And what did you think of the Carlotta Valdez twist? Because Gavin sets it up with Judy that she she is being possessed by Carlotta Valdez, this old widow who is allegedly her his wife's great-great-grandmother. Um, and that she's coming to haunt them at the same age of 26 and that she, you know, she ended up killing herself at 26. I kind of feel put on, put on the spot right now. Cause I do not remember this part of the movie at all. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. You, yeah. 
<laughs> I don't. I, how do you not? Did you just not pay? Did you just? Were you Tommy no, no, no. face for an hour? Like what happened? No, no, no. The, the the first the first half of this movie, I was kind of watching like stressed out, like getting ready to go to work uh, for some like training thing, and I wasn't paying attention nearly as much. But I, I did figure it was more so just like the whole thing of like her just being like just oh, so some suicidal crazy woman. Uh, this movie for me didn't really kick in until honestly like right around the time where um she died quotation marks you know um i think that's where it kind of kicked off for me the movie i feel like also i need to rewatch a little bit i think that this also would benefit a lot with rewatch too where you can fit in the pieces a little bit more of seeing like you know this movie has a great twist right here of uh you know madeline and um not being herself or whatever um and i feel like once you know that, and once you watch this and rewatch, you can see the little the breadcrumbs here more over and over and over uh, again. Yeah, I, this movie feels like a movie that will benefit time and time again from a rewatch, mm-hmm. and like a great movie to show people too to get their reactions. Because I guess you were stressed about work or whatever you had going on, and you just weren't fully giving it your all. Um, mm-hmm. I was engaged from like the first scene on um mm-hmm. and especially once uh Ga- gavin introduces kind of like the through line of the movie mm-hmm. um i really loved that and the reason i had mentioned carlotta baldis before because apparently you don't remember anything from the first half of the movie really good job as a you know podcast co-host tommy <laughs> i appreciate well, yeah, it yeah that's the one there was one aspect of the movie i did, did not remember when you said that i was like oh shit so yeah, no, Tommy, you were just hoping I was going to talk about like one half of the movie and not the other half of the movie. Um, <laughs> so Carlotta Valdez is the woman that Judy playing, playing his wife, playing Elster's wife, Madeline, pretends she's being possessed by coming in and out, remembering some things as herself, some things as Madeline being born in 1831. I was like, this feels hokey and not in line with Hitchcock in terms of like, is this going to be a weird possession, like thriller horror movie? Like, where is this going? Which is what what kept me captivated because I was like, because even watching a horror, a Hitchcock horror movie, The Birds, right? Which is like we we said in the episode, the movie kind of genre that Hitchcock completely elevates up. Yeah. And I'm watching this and I'm going, like, where is this going? Like, this would not be considered Hitchcock's greatest worst work if he was if she was just like possessed. That felt just way some hokey shit. Too predictable. Yeah. So like uh, I mean, I was going to ask you, like, where did you think it was gonna go during this first third of the movie? But apparently for you it was like maybe Domino's, McDonald's, like what did you have for dinner? No, no, no. I mean, I, I was still, I was still engaged in the movie to a certain extent. I just like that one aspect. I just kind of just washed over me. I just figured it was more so James Stewart just say like, going more and more into madness. Um, and I mean, it is funny that like, this is as a movie we both never seen before. I mean, what do you think Vertigo was going to be originally? Um, for me, I thought it was going to be a movie about just some detective who was getting fucked with because of fear of heights. And I thought that was the big extent of it. <laughs> I thought I was going to be watching the music video from YouTube for two hours. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I mean, there is something where this is part of the reason why the movie got um, mixed responses at first. Um, apparently, Variety said at the time that uh, this sh- uh, film was too long and too sl- uh, it's too slow. And pretty much people said that, like that a lot of the um, critics at the time, like uh, Philip K. Schuer of the Los Angeles Times said that the plot took too long to unfold and bogs down in amazing detail. I don't agree with that uh, solely, but I feel like this movie really kicked in for me. And I got way more engaged once this movie kind of kicked in more into the mystery and more into the um, extent of it and more of like the whole thing of like the twist of fucking uh, Madeline dying. That's when it captivated me. And this is why I ended up loving the movie towards the end, because I felt like that's where it really took a hold of me. And that's why I really want to see how the first half holds up on rewatch. I, I know it's like eleven, almost eleven o'clock by you Eastern time. I need you to just before you go to bed rewatch it because I yeah. <laughs> I can't really can't believe the words that you're agreeing with a critic from 1958. Um, so I, for me, I I didn't feel that way at all. Like I so one I think a lot of the movies wait early on the its shoulders on Bernard Herman's fabulous score. 
it just builds that suspense of like you know there's mm-hmm. probably like there's a good 15 minute sequence of her him just tailing her before she ends up jumping into the water and it like i'm sitting there going like he's doing a, a terrible job is is he going to is he going to like, like how is he going to get caught like where is this going to mm-hmm. go wrong and it, it just never does and it just keeps going and going and i just kept sitting there and like like moving closer to the edge of my seat honestly because it was what is going on here um if i had to say anything where it was like it felt not fully unresolved but kind of unresolved um was the relationship between scotty and midge um after Mm. madeline the real madeline dies and james stewart is like incapable of speak speech overcome with grief completely um you know she visits him in the hospital like trying to cheer him up being all lovey-dovey for him and then she talks to the doctor and he she just goes yeah you know he he's still in love with her like he mm-hmm. you know and she you know who who played marjorie um barbara bell Geddes, like really just like stifled that emotion there where you're like okay she's gonna go into her car and just break down in tears but like held it together in yeah. front of the doctor there when she was having that back and forth with with him that i i felt like i could have maybe used one more scene like of of him of her bumping into scotty and and she, she did kind of feel un- under she did feel kind of underwritten as a character i mean like obviously she's not like the main focus but i feel like it, she could have had more of a engaging part of this movie and more of just like a in part of the plot or like interactions with any of the other the characters but it's just more so just like hey here's this like fiance like ex ex-wife of mine <laughs> yeah i yeah. mean it would have been interesting if she was the nun that walked up the stairs but yeah exactly. that probably uh, would have been that probably would have been too hokey so there's one movie that I thought about a lot when I was watching this movie, and um, maybe because it was, took place in San Francisco too. A movie we covered on the pod uh, last year, um, Basic Instinct. Um, there's a lot of parallels I feel like between this and Basic Instinct, where you can see the little parallels. Where like you know, uh, it starts off with James Stewart like fucking up as a cop, whereas like you know, Michael Douglas has this little backstory. Obviously, Basic Instinct is a little more sleazy, a little bit more fucking the rock thriller, but I do see like a lot of, it, of the things of like. I could see Kim Novak, how Sharon Stone got a little bit of influence right there, especially in the beginning and stuff like that. And when you could see a little bit parallels between the two movies. Yes. Yeah. I, I, there's definitely, there's an influence on it. I imagine if you Mm. dive, if you pull any random thriller off the shelf and you ask the director, what movies did he watch in preparation as an influence? Hitchcock is right there. This one will probably be one of them that, that they use as an influence um i think it's more the setting I, yeah I maybe feel, it was more the setting <laughs> I, I didn't feel the story at, at all kind of parallel and like i can't remember like specific sequences and like i didn't feel like kim novak and granted this is probably due to the the code of the time like the hollywood code yeah. was like utilizing her sexuality the way that sharon stone does in basic instinct yeah, I mean, thankfully, I mean, like, um, with the ta- uh, the censorship at the time, with um, you know, the what's called the film authority board, or whatever the fuck it's called, um, they wanted to do like a coda to the film that showed that Gavin uh, Elster got arrested or something like that in Europe or something, and you know, just because like as the code at the time, where, like the villain has to make the coming up, and it's and Hitchcock had the fucking uh, power and the balls to say to the uh, authority at the time, the government being like, no, fuck that. We're not ending my movie like that. That would just been like hokey. <laughs> that would have sucked. That would have ruined the movie. Like the movie ends perfectly with the, so the, the great reveal is that James Stewart sees the necklace of Carlotta Valdez that Judy is wearing that Gavin Elster let Judy keep as a token. And that's when he puts two and two together that there were two different people and he wisely drives her back out to the tower um the the church and takes her up the stairs it's where he overcomes his fear confronting her about this and he has that comeuppance and it's great because in the beginning midge his ex-fiance tells him that you need to have talks about a psychological impact of when you you have to overcome your fear by having an emotional 
turnaround moment to overcome a fear like that. And again, it's it's just a nice little like like I noticed it on my first watch through. Like that's just a nice little moment of like foreshadowing of what's going to happen mm. that that was masterfully layered into the script. And I just felt like watching um, Judy take her take her own life accidentally mm. because the nun walks up the stairs she's going oh i thought i heard voices and then she falls and she the nun rings the bells as james stewart is looking down on her and then the movie cuts and perfect it, and it, perfect, it, it, perfect, the perfect, perfect 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 and then if you put a if you put a coda if you put a marvel post credit scene in there of like elster yeah. like on a beach in Shangri-La or whatever and then yeah. like the FBI storming so he gets his comeuppance I mean, it would kill the movie like yeah yeah I mean I mean that's the thing about like you know the ending we don't need to see of like James Stewart in the hospital later on or telling the authorities like oh she just fell oh I'm so sorry like I don't know what happened she just fell but I mean I think that a movie just like also just this was the best part of Hitchcock weaponizing James Stewart's persona right there where he's menacing. He's pretty much he threatening is. the hell of it. And so you, this is a guy you would never expect to be threatening towards a woman. And all of a sudden, just like, oh my God, James Stewart's doing this. So, I mean, it's crazy to me to think about this. Um, apparently, you know, this movie, like we said earlier in the pod, didn't do well with the critics at the time. It kind of got mixed reception and wasn't a big box office hit. And apparently the, um, a lot of the blame and what Hitchcock thought was the reason was because James Stewart looked too old to attract audiences anymore. Um, Hitchcock never looked at uh, of Stewart again uh, because of that, because apparently people thought like, oh, like, like James Stewart's too old. Like he couldn't attract, uh, what's her name? Um, Kim, Kim Novak. Novak at all. Yeah, yeah at all. Because like, I mean, he, granted, he's like 49 or 50 at the time of this movie and like he does have gray hairs, but it wasn't like, terrible to a point where it's like oh god what the fuck <laughs> yeah i mean i i would say it's more of like the way when he meets judy and then they're interacting and he goes you you know i, I mean no harm to you and he comes off so innocent like he plays in that boyish charm and then he's like wow yeah you, you know yeah oh she died i'm sorry it's like well could you just have dinner with me Oh, and and what else? Oh, no, just dinner, and then it turns into like a controlling, manipulative relationship, and mm-hmm. and it's not what you would expect of of Stewart, but that's what makes it brilliant because you have this expectation of Stewart in your head, and I wonder for audiences at the time where, okay, movies have had sound for like forty years at this point, mm-hmm. like they, you know, James Stewart was the first one of the first like sound stars of film like having his persona and back then like if you think typecast casting's bad now typecasting back then was like you that was you that was you that was your guy yeah you did, you did that and that was your thing you can't get out of the box <laughs> and then you take a guy like stewart and take him out of the box it was probably jarring for audiences at the time and being like, why is james stewart like he he's nice and wholesome because like people just thought back then like James Stewart was a nice, wholesome guy because he always played a nice, wholesome guy in movies. I mean, we, we see this time and time again. I mean, like uh, back in the 90s, for example, when um, Jim Carrey did that movie, The Cable Guy, audiences rejected that at the time because they're like, I don't want to see Jim Carrey be this menacing asshole because <laughs> we want to see Jim Carrey be the goofy, funny guy that he is. And, like, you know, this is a thing that happens over and over again when actors get maybe a little bit too far outside their box or a little too outside their movie star persona. Or it's just like, oh, this is this is weird. I don't like this. I mean, granted, obviously now Vertigo is a classic, and we all like we're divorced from the movie star persona of James Stewart, like sixty seven years later. But at the time, I could imagine when you go to see it, uh, like, oh, James Stewart's gonna be the wholesome detective that's gonna sell this story, and then all of a sudden he's threatening uh, fucking Kim Novak, and you're like, oh god, what's what's happening here, <laughs> James Stewart? Why? <laughs> Well, it's, it's that boldness of the time. And the one sequence that we hinted at at the beginning where I was like, this feels out of the 60s. So when he has his nightmare and it is psychedelic, it is it, the way that he, the lights flashing back and forth, the different like kaleidoscope looking like lenses as his, just his face rushes mm-hmm. towards the floor of the church and uh, uh, the roof of the church that Madeline fell on. Like, I was like, holy 
Toledo. I did not I did not expect that to be coming out of a Hitchcock movie from 1958. It really felt like something some kid took LSD and and filmed in film school in 1967. Not not I mean not at all. I mean when I saw the scene, I was like, wow, I can't believe this was something in the 50s right here because like it really felt ahead of its time in a lot of ways i can imagine if you saw that in 1950s like you know, it'd be like what the fuck is this bullshit but i mean this is something we've seen in like nightmare sequences and movies over the years and like horror movies like the italian horror movies of like Suspiria and stuff like that where you could see the through line right there and just very trippy very psychedelic very just like jarring in a way that like you wouldn't expect a movie like this to be <laughs> other or think of another um iconic dream film director david lynch exactly yeah i mean inspiration uh, there we're gonna cover mohana drive uh sometime this summer with the film versus film guys and apparently on the wikipedia page for this movie vertigo it said derivative works and mohana drive was right there so oh yeah oh yeah there's <laughs> I, some I, there's some parody you'll i'm i'm excited for mohana drive oh man i can't wait it's a movie it. you've been trying to get me to watch for the past like five years so uh, we're getting get ready for it <laughs> yeah. It faced a lot of rejections on movie roulette, and now you don't yeah. have a choice. <laughs> I am a star. I'm a star, I'm a star, I'm a star. I am a big, bright, shining star. All right, Tommy, who is the star of Vertigo? I mean, it's a two-person race, quote-unquote, between James Stewart and Kim Novak, and I don't know if it's too much of, of a race. I, I think that it's James Stewart all the way. I mean, like the the descent into madness. I mean, like uh, there's a scene in this movie where he picks out like dress uh, dress for um, mm-hmm. Kim Novak that like looks exactly like what uh, Madeline was wearing uh, earlier in the movie, and um, it's just like kind of just creepy and obsessed. I mean, like you always hear the stories of the guys who try to make their ex, uh, their new girlfriend look exactly like their ex girlfriend. That's exactly what's happening here with him. And it's just creepy and unsettling. And the fact that Kim Novak's just rejecting it at the time is like, oh, God. I mean, we see him at the beginning of the movie be more typical James Stewart and then slowly unravel in a way that's very interesting and very fun to see. Yeah. And I think for um, Stewart uh, and first of all, it's James Stewart in total agreeance with you and Mm -hmm. pretty much everything you said. I do want to give my props to Kim Novak. I think if she didn't land the way that she did and had this like whatever the lens of seductive could be in 1958 in movies she's at the extreme of that um from her looks to just her body language um the way she interacts with Stuart um it really comes comes across there um yeah and like I think the interesting part of that scene specifically is that Stuart you know she it's not even James Stewart trying to turn his new girlfriend into his old girlfriend. He's trying to turn his new girlfriend into his old girlfriend who played his old girlfriend. Like, yeah, it yeah. It's layer. the layers like, of it. <laughs> like she's like looking at the clothes being like, I already wore this. Like I have it somewhere in my closet. Like I don't want to, like, this is not who I am. Like I was paid to. They even focus on that suit uh, earlier in the movie when like, she first gives the reveal. <laughs> oh yeah. It's, it's, it's very much focused upon um it's a it's the the the, those two performances carry the movie but stewart's star power um and just his range of an as an actor is on full display here and i'm glad that james stewart is able to and i I granted there's a lot of james stewart movies from times before but just knowing of the trends of that time like you kind of played the character you 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 always did in movies and it was very nice to see him being able to like showcase how good of a performer he can be um in a movie from an era where actors didn't always get to do that yeah exactly people don't get to be as menacing or stuff like that or just subvert subvert their fucking movie star persona you know you don't even really see that at the time (laughs) Ah, are you ready comedy partner waka waka tommy would vertigo work as a muppet adaptation i feel like you have to go like full parody right here there's um a mel gibson movie uh not mel gibson mel uh brooks movie called high anxiety that is just a straight up parody of that of uh vertigo and i feel like you could take it like if you took like the mel brooks style of vertigo 
and just mm-hmm. made it with Muppets instead, it would work completely. <laughs> yeah, but, I think I think it would have to be uh, just in a full parody, full tongue in cheek, uh, no humans, all Muppets. I think it would just I think it would work. I think it would be funny. Um, I don't know if it would connect to the Muppets target audience of eight year olds, but you know, <laughs> eight year olds like and uh, thirty year old podcasters. <laughs> yeah, well, we would be the people that it would work for. I'm talking about, you know, yeah. they make Muppet stuff for for children. They don't make <laughs> it for us. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so, Tommy, review time. Give me your score out of five. Um, I mean, I don't even know if this is a complete review because you remember one half of the movie and don't remember the other half at all. Well, okay, so here's what I'll say. I mean, like, I'll admit that, like, you know, I wasn't fully immersed in the first half, um, but... I wouldn't call that a fault of the movie. I call it more of a fault of just like the circumstances of watching a movie. I mean, you know, we've talked before about how, you know, you need to be in a certain mindset to be, uh, watch a movie. And um, that being said, I mean, the second this movie kicked into the twist and the second this movie kicked into Madeline's death uh, or death quotation marks, it really gripped me in a way. And I really just like sold the movie for me. And I just felt that James Stewart was very captivating. I felt like it really made up for me. This is a movie I'm really looking forward to uh, rewatching. I might rewatch it sometime this week. And I'm going to go like 4.5 out of 5. I mean, like regardless of my thoughts about the first half, I wouldn't blame it on the movie. I blame it more on the circumstances of me watching this. And I think the second half of this movie is fucking amazing. And I can't wait to see how the first half leads into it again. <laughs> yeah, this is a movie I'm also just ecstatic to rewatch in a couple of weeks like i want to let it sit like i feel like this is a movie mm. like two or three days from now i'll just be sitting there and it, it'll just pop into my mind which i just think is always a great sign of a of a great move of a truly great movie um i just think from top down to bottom story um cinematography direction mm. masterful work um I'm going to give this a five out of five. I I get the hype. I see the hype. I understand why this movie is now revered as one of the greatest of all time. Um, And I think we're just going to have to keep watching more and more Hitchcock movies. Yeah. (laughs) Because like I'm kind of hooked and dive deep into his filmography. So which which Hitchcock movies have you seen so far? Um, birds obviously birds this. this and rear window and you've seen psycho so like i mean we have a we have his entire catalog. yeah we, we have a lot we have a lot to go through i mean i haven't seen rear window myself i've only seen birds psycho and now this so yeah, well, i mean we have we have our june hitchcock movie maybe we just kick off every month from now until we cover every movie he's ever done we just yeah. kick off the month <laughs> like hitchcock can... monthly i i'm i'm here for the segment yeah yeah i, I i'm totally for it um but yeah, I mean, I don't know. This movie was just like captivating in a way that I didn't really expect. I mean, like this is obviously the bridge was fun, but this is a whole other level. I feel like. <laughs> yeah, th- this is so. I I haven't I saw Rear Window during COVID, and like I remember it, but like I I want to watch it relatively soon to kind of compare it with, um, with, uh, this movie. So mm-hmm. I think rear window should probably be a, a june movie i think that's going to be one of the movies we cover in june i'm declaring this without consulting tommy whatsoever okay <laughs> well yeah then we should cover psycho next month because psycho is a movie that i've saw during a three-day horror movie marathon with uh, our buddy will and uh it's kind of spacey at that point when once you hit three days in, in a movie marathon <laughs> well i wonder do we hold off on psycho for halloween Maybe, maybe we'll, we'll discuss this later. So there's this is... a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. Okay. We're we're now you're getting behind the scenes stuff, and this yeah. podcast is already <laughs> too long. So, uh, Tommy, any final thoughts before we wrap this one up? I uh, can't wait to rewatch the first half. But anyways, uh, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You can follow us on social media at Cnet Pod. That's on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And leave us a five star review. Apple, Spotify, wherever your podcast really helps us out. And uh, we have a great month coming up. Uh, we're going to be covering uh, Whiplash next week. So Timmy's really excited for that one. I've never seen that one before. Uh, somehow I've seen La La Land. That's the only Damon Giselle movie I've seen before. So <laughs> Whiplash is in my top 10. I love this movie. Um, mm. So I haven't watched it in a couple of years. So I'm very excited to see. Um, to see your reaction to it i think it's kind of thematically close to um 
somewhat in terms of manipulation. I think you'll see those parallels between Vertigo and Whiplash. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm so excited for you. I wish I could sit with you and hold your hand and and caress it while you watch it for the very first well, time. I mean, that's the thing about this pod. Sometimes when like yeah, I'm like making you watch a movie for the first time, I like wish I was right there with you. Like when we discovered, decided to watch like Scream or uh, any other horror movie, I'd be like, I just wish I could watch Timmy's face, especially during Evil Dead when like you were just probably like, fuck this movie. And I wish I could see how angry you got watching that movie last week. <laughs> I mean, if we're talking about a movie that didn't captivate me in the first forty-five minutes versus <laughs> versus Vertigo. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Okay, weird aside, I saw a bunch of stuff on Twitter of people because now Evil Dead Rise. So I have to assume people are paying these tweets being like, I can't believe how good Evil Dead 2013 is. And I I was like, I was baffled. (laughs) You're like, like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) I was utterly baffled. I'm like, I've never heard one person ever speak about this movie until this new Evil Dead comes out. And now everybody's just posting that one clip at the end with the chainsaw being like, look at how beautiful this is. I feel like that's a problem with a lot of film analysis and to tie it into star wars the last jedi where people are like look at how beautiful this shot is and i'm like that doesn't make a movie good just because it has a beautiful shot a lot of really bad movies have really beautiful shots I, I i mean we we could we could spend a whole other fucking 50 minutes of debating evil dead again but we've already covered that last week um but no, it was just, I still it, was think just movie... an, it was just an aside of like um of, oh of, of like the uh of of seeing people who are just like well yeah this this movie had this shot or in the last jedi's case it's like oh like how awesome was it when the the cruiser went into the other cruiser and look at how beautiful I mean, it is and i'm like yeah it's beautiful but the movie sucked like i, I mean I, you're, you're, you're talking about two movies i actually liked so i mean uh let's say what there's so uh last point on evil dead uh so i actually did see evil dead rise uh this past week um i meant, meant to bring that up earlier but um the main thing i wanted to bring up was in evil dead rise there's a fucked up mo- uh, moment in the movie as you can imagine no yeah, exactly. Shocker. So there's a fucked up movie in the theater and uh, during the screen, my friends and I went to and uh, after the fucked up moment in that movie happened, I heard a little kid cry out, can we go home? <laughs> I just felt immediately like, who the fuck brings our kid to a goddamn Evil Dead movie? <laughs> like, Tommy's just fuck? thinking about his future kids being like, I'm going to be that dad. All right. <laughs> this, podcast dad. Is, this podcast is long enough. Thank you all so much for listening. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Bev's Video Kingdom, because the movies won't talk about themselves. So Andy crawls through this river of shit. He comes out, visits a dozen banks, and no one's like, I'm a little concerned about the guy in the suit. <laughs> right. It smells like shit. You mean, you, mean, you mean the guy that literally washed himself in a river full of shit? And is supposed to smell, <laughs> smell good? Dude, that's completely the mall rat stink palm, which takes like three or four days to wash off. <laughs> oh, last time I scratched my ass, it smelled like Bigfoot's dick for a week. <laughs> Bev's Video Kingdom. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.